I know typically on our communion Sundays, we have communion before the message, but this morning I want to do something a little bit different. I wanted to share the message this morning because I'll be talking for a little while about the Lord's Supper and communion and Paul's instructions as it related to that. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, Corinth was a city in an area much like the Triangle, a city of a lot of people, a lot of education. It was a port city, a lot of commerce there, a lot of money, a lot of sin. And Paul, on his first missionary journey, had established a church at Corinth. church was mostly a Gentile church. Been that religion in some ways, certainly Christianity, was completely new to them. They did have some Jews in the church, some converted Jews to Christianity. And this was all certainly very new to them. And Paul, writing to that church, was writing because he had found out there had been some problems in that church. That church, not unlike the church of many today, the cultures, the practices, the sins of the world had crept into the church. And that's what 1 Corinthians is about. And Paul dealt with everything in that church from to sexual immorality, to divisions in the church, to instructions on marriage, and all of those issues that we still deal with today. But he also dealt with the Lord's Supper. Because the world had crept into that as well. And so my, my uh, scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 33. And Jonathan's going to have it up on the screen. I'll be reading from the NIV. And it's a little long, but if you'll bear with me, I'd like to read the whole thing. Because I think it's important for us to understand what Paul was dealing with. And this is Paul writing to that church. He said, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have, been, no doubt there ha- there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord and also I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come to the judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you, God, that it provides everything we need for life and living and godliness. Lord, and I, 
as I stand up here, God, I pray that my words won't be my words, but they'll be your, your words. Lord, I stand here as an imperfect man, only made righteous before a holy God through and by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that the words that go forth, Lord, will penetrate the hearts of the hearer. God, as they've penetrated my heart as I've prepared for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul deals with a lot of things here. But there's four broad themes that Paul deals with in particular of what communion should be and several and some things that it shouldn't be. But first is, and he deals with this in verse 18 specifically when Paul says this, In the first place, I hear that when you come together in this church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. The communion time church should be a time of unity. I have never seen a time when the nation and churches are so divided. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse because we're looking for the solutions within ourselves, particularly amongst race. And I happen to work in a job where I deal with these issues, and we're constantly looking for an answer. And we have people from all walks of life at these meetings, particularly when we have the people that are clergy or reverends are there, and they, they're looking for solutions to these problems. And, and I, there's, we've had more meetings and more town halls and more forums and more classes than you can shake a stick at, but it seems to be getting worse. Because I know what the real answer is. I know what it is. It's a real salvation experience with Jesus Christ. And, and submitting to His Lordship. That's the hard part. Okay? People come up all the time and they say they had a salvation experience, but have they submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have they begun to read God's Word? Have they begun to have them lie, their lives come underneath the authority of Scripture? Or are they still lording themselves over it? The Lordship. Have they come under the Lordship? Because if you come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you cannot look at a brother and sister Certainly in the Lord, but you can't look at them or anyone out there and harbor any hatred in your heart. You can't do it. The Bible gives clear instruction. And, and, and that doesn't mean that when we come into a relationship with the Lord, there still won't be things in our lives that we struggle with, whether it's, whether it's attitudes we have against people of different races, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, that those things don't sometimes come in because we still struggle in our flesh. But the Bible gives instructions. And Pastor talked about this morning in Sunday school. It tells us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And we have to get hold of those things and say, God, this ain't right. I can't harbor this in my heart. I can't do this or feel this way about my fellow man, no matter what they say about me. There should be unity. What happened down in Charleston, South Carolina was terrible. What happened in Charleston, South Carolina was evil personified, walked into the house of God and murdered God's people. That's what happened. And, you know, they interviewed this guy, and he said, I almost didn't do it. They were so kind to me, I almost didn't do it. And I had a conversation, Brother Jesse and I were talking about it tonight, and I have to share what you said, Jesse, because it's so true. For a moment there, he was ready not to do that. But that evil in his heart wouldn't let him not do it. And people are trying to answer there saying, Why would, what, what would possess a person to do such a thing? Racial hatred, that had something to do with it. Mental disorder, you've got to be a little touched to go in and do that to another human being. Had something to do with it, but primarily it was evil. And we live in a world today that people don't believe that. They they think if somebody will do such things, that that there must be a reason. They don't believe in in the spirit. Paul in the book of Ephesians said, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. 
As believers, we don't wrestle with We wrestle with powers and principalities and the rulers of this world. Our battle is spiritual. Yes, we deal with the effects of it. I deal with the effects of it in my job all the time. But the big battle is spiritual. What walked into the church, AME church that day, was, 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 was Satan himself. That's what happened. And those people put Christianity on display in that when this man came before his first appearance, people weeping said, I forgive you for what you did to my loved one. Could I have done that? Gosh, that had been hard. If it had been, what if it had been our pastor? Came and I have talked about that. Could you imagine seeing someone do that to your pastor? But these people said, we forgive you. And they put Christianity on display. And how do I know that evil, that, 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 that a... That a that a relationship with Christ is the only thing that will change that? Solomon said this. He said, there's nothing new under the sun. And about 18, 1900 years ago, something very similar happened. But this wasn't by someone who was fueled by racial hatred necessarily. He was fueled by religious hatred. And his name was Saul. And Saul was a Jew, and he was a devout Jew, and there was a new way, and it was this man named Jesus of Nazareth. He'd been crucified. He was... He had risen from the dead, and people were following him, and he was bound and determined to put a stop to it. And he went into the churches, and the Bible says there was a man named Stephen, and boy, he gave the the, the Jewish leaders that day what for. Uh, If you've never read the stoning of Stephen in your Bible in the book of Acts, you need to. Because Stephen looked at the religious leaders of that day. He said, is there a prophet that you didn't kill? Is there a prophet that you didn't kill? And then now here comes along Jesus, and you've, and you've crucified and killed him too. Well, you can imagine how angry that made them. You can imagine how angry it made them. So what they did, they pulled this man out of the synagogue, Stephen. And the Bible says that they took and they stoned him to death. That was, an image, that, that, was, that was depicted in the Bible series, the most recent Bible series. I don't know if you've seen it. But I thought, as I watched it, I thought, could you imagine dying that way? Could you imagine being stoned to death? And there stood a man named Saul. And as they threw them rocks, they had to take those big cloaks off so they could throw them rocks. They took them big cloaks off and they laid them. And Saul held those things. He held them while they stoned Stephen. And the Bible says that the church became heavily persecuted. And Saul sent people out everywhere to persecute these new Christians. But then one day, the Bible says that Saul was on his way to Damascus, Syria. And he had a supernatural encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the Bible said it blinded him, and he had to go see a man named Ananias. And Ananias prayed for Saul, and his eyes were opened. Not just his physical eyes, but his spiritual eyes were opened. And this man, for as much as he hated everyone in that, then, he loved him as much then. And he wrote most of the New Testament. And most of the New Testament is letters to churches that he went around and established in the name of this Christianity that he hated so much. But now he loved it. And as a matter of fact, he wrote this from a prison. He was in prison for Christianity. And he wrote Colossians 3.11. This is what he said. He said, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What a change of heart. What, let me tell you. Before Paul had an encounter with the Lord, he'd have never said there's no Jew or Gentile. Judaism was everything to him. He would have never said there's no circumcision or uncircumcision. 
Circumcision meant everything to the, to the Jews. But now he understood that Christ is all and he's in all. If we put that in today's, if we put that in today's perspective, there, in, in the kingdom of God, there's no black, there's no white, there's no Hispanic, there's no Indonesian, there's no uh, Asian. We're, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. Christ is in us all and he is all. And that's how we have to see each other. That's how we have, I, I, I love referring to my brothers and sisters as just that. Because that's what we are. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. As much, in some cases, more than my biological brother. Thank God he has a relationship with the Lord. But if he didn't, you're more of my brothers and sisters than he is. I'm going to spend eternity with you. I'm going to spend eternity with you in heaven. I may or may not spend eternity in heaven with a family member if they're not, if they're not accepted Christ as their Savior. So we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the only thing that can change that, the only thing that can really get in and change that is the relationship with the Lord and coming underneath His Lordship. We don't see it. We don't, unfortunately, the world oftentimes don't see it as evil. You know, Jesus, when He was talking to His disciples about receiving the Holy Ghost, He said this to His, to his disciples now. He looked at them. And it's just as matter-of-factly, He said this. He said, You who are evil, if you'll give a good gift, how much more will the Father give a gift? And he, he, what he tells us, he said, you're evil. We don't see ourselves that way. Jeremiah said, the heart is above all things evil. Who can know it but God? And the only thing that can change that, the only thing that can break that down is a relationship with, the Lord, with, with Jesus Christ. I want to say to, we've got some new members. This will be your first communion. And I want to, like the pastor did such a great job. And I want to welcome you to, Bethel Christian Center, to our family, if you're a new believer, to the family of God. And he said it so well, you didn't join a perfect church. Mark Rutland described the perfect church. I've said this before. He, he, I was at a con- convention several years ago with the pastor, and he was speaking to pastors, and he said, you want a perfect church, run all the people out, and then you leave, and your church will be perfect. Now, it'll be completely ineffective, but it's going to be perfect, because we're not. We're still broken. We're still struggles, opinions. We're going to have differences of opinions, and we can. We can. But let's don't let it get into our heart and become bitterness towards our brothers and our sisters. But I want to welcome you. But the, what, I, what blessed me so much as, as I watched our new members join and as I've seen our church grow, and, and as I studied this, I, I want to, this just, just came on me, and I just want to say it. I want to, our church is beginning to grow. We have people coming in. I want to caution our church. I've been here at Bethel about 15 years. And if there's anything, one thing Satan don't want to see, he don't want to see a church grow. He don't want to see new believers. He don't want to see that. And it seems like sometimes when that happens, something slips in and a division is caused in our church. I've seen it happen. Let's guard our church. If something gets into your spirit or something gets into someone's spirit, you guys get together. You lady, let's work that thing out. Let's don't let it cause divisions in our church. But one thing I noticed about that, and as I've looked at our church and as it's grown, I've noticed over the last few years it's become more and more diverse. And I've seen white people and black people and Hispanic people. We've got Indonesian people. And I hope that continues. Because when I see that, I see the kingdom of God. I see the kingdom of God. And if we will continue to start worshiping together, I, all these people out here who are trying to find an answer to that, they're not going to find the answer. But when you come down amongst, when we close our, our services many times around this altar, 
And you come down, you stand next to your brother and sister in the Lord. It looks different to you. Their skin color is different than you. And you begin to pray with one another under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. There ain't no animosity there. It's just not. I just don't hear that out too much out there. Jesus said this in John 17, 20 through 21. He was talking to his disciples. He said, for my prayer is not for them alone. He was talking about Jesus is praying to his father. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. And I'm going to stop it right there. That all of them may be one. Jesus said, I want, I, I want a unified church. That's what I want. I want a people that come up underneath the banner of the cross. And they're one. And that was his prayer for them. You know, I don't know what's going to come out of what happened down in Charleston. Nobody knows. But my hope and my prayer is this. Just as in Genesis and Joseph, many of you know about the story of Joseph. If you've never read the story of Joseph, go get your Bible. Go to Genesis and find the story of Joseph and read it. But Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And through many trials of life, he rose to be the second in charge of Egypt. And what happened was, his, his, he, he aged, he became older, and, his bro- and he, he wanted to see his brothers. So he called his brothers to him. And his brothers, when they realized who Joseph was, they were scared. They thought, gosh, look what we did our brother years ago. Surely he's going to kill us. And he had that authority. Joseph had that authority. And Joseph said this, and this is what I hope, and this, is, this would be just like our God. Take a situation like happened down in Charleston, South Carolina. And Joseph said this. What you intended for harm, God used for good. And what Satan may have intended for harm to send a man in and destroy some of his people, God may use that for good. That might be the very thing that God uses to, to bring his church together. And that's my prayer and my hope. And I will say this, that as the church of Jesus Christ becomes more and more unpopular, and it's going to, it's going to, and it becomes more and more persecuted, and it's going to, I don't know how, how that, I don't know how that's going to play out, but it's going to. You're going to see more denominational walls and more racial walls tear down. You're going to see a church that's going to be like the early church. We're going to need each other. We're going to need each other. We're going to need each other spiritually. We're going to need each other emotionally. We're going to need each other financially. That's what's going to happen. Communion should be a time of unity. We take that communion this morning, and we come up, and guess what? We're going to see people walking up here to get those elements that look different than us. And I thank God for that. Let's be unified. Let's be unified. It should also be a time of reverence. Paul dealt with that in verses 23 through 27 in Corinthians, but I want to read just verse 27 to you. It says, So then, whenever, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. I grew up in church, and I remember during communion time being scared to death. I was. I, that, that scripture, every time they'd read that scripture and say, whoever drinks of the cup or eats of the body unworthy, it scared me to death. Because I, I would sit down and be like, is that me? Did I do that? What's happening? I, I, I said something I shouldn't have said this week. I did something. This and it was a time of fear. Communion shouldn't be a time of fear. But let me say this. 
The only criteria to be worthy for the communion is that you've accepted Christ as your Savior and made Him Lord of your life. Because none of us are worthy to take that, of that cup or take of that bread within ourselves. It's only through and by faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. Okay, but let me say this. We've made it, sometimes we've made it too easy. Because it is for the believer. And I'm going to open this altar before we have communion today. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that so you can do that. But this is sacred. This is a sacred time before the Lord. And it's serious business. And we should be reverent. And we should understand what it is we're going to do. It should be a reverent fear. You know, the hyper-grace doctrine, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. Some of you refer to it as cheap grace, is destroying the fear of the Lord. Now, growing up the way I grew up, it took me some time to get past seeing God as this cosmic being that's just waiting for me to mess up and, and, and sin so he can send me to hell. I, I had to work on it, and I still struggle with that. I, I, don't, I don't mind telling you that. I do. But at the same token... I fear God. I have a holy, reverent fear of Him. And I'm not going to play with the holy and the sacred things of God. There's going to be judgment one day. I, I, didn't, I, didn't give, I didn't give Jonathan this scripture. But as I was thinking about this before I came in, I wrote this down. This comes out of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30. This is what it says. God will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You don't hear that a lot. Mostly what you hear today is, you know, your best life now and how wonderful God. And he is. He is. But one day I'm going to stand before him in judgment. Now, I'm saved. But I'm still going to stand before him in judgment. And for those who've rejected him, they're going to stand before him in judgment. And it's going to be a dreadful thing. And that's why I care. That's why the church cares. Because the things of God are holy. And they're not to be toyed with and they're not to be tinkered with. To the point, see, here's what Paul was dealing with. In the early church, communion was a feast. It wasn't like now. It wasn't where you come down and get a little cup of grape juice and a, and a piece of cardboard. And, and these things do represent the body and the blood. And I understand that. But then it was a feast. And they came and it was actually a meal. And Paul, what they had done, just like the culture, they had come in. They weren't really thinking about what this was about. They were thinking, okay, I'm hungry. I'm coming in to eat. I'm going to drink too much of the wine. And Paul said, look, don't you have a young house to eat? eat it? Go eat there first. And then it said, the Bible says that they, they were like pretty much knocking each other out of the way to get up to the communion table. And yearly the people who had plenty were knocking those who really needed the bread out of the way. It had become a big party atmosphere. And you know what Paul said? He said, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. And when he says that, what that means, that's why some of you have died. God's business is serious business. Let's don't make light of it. And I, like probably many of you, I, I'm so glad I live in a free society. We've been free to worship. Sometimes I've come desensitized to this. Sometimes, okay, we're doing communion again. I, this today, I want to be sure that I stop for a minute and realize what this is about. What happened, the price that was paid for my sin. But this hyper-grace 
doctrine has taken the edge off the fear of the Lord. If you don't know what that is, basically it says, in a nutshell, it says that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And we believe that. But they take it so far as to say that you don't have to worry about what the Scripture says and how we should live our lives because that grace has now covered your future sins. Folks, I believe in repentance when we come to the Lord, and I believe that repentance is a way of life. I, I, I tell you, I, I, I believe repentance is a way of life. Now, I don't believe, we don't believe once saved, always saved as a, as a pure doctrine. Uh, we don't, but, and we don't believe you jump in and out of salvation, but we believe in a lifestyle of repentance. Because you're going to struggle with your flesh and things from time to time. And you have to repent before the Lord. I, I had a chance to, to talk with the youth this Wednesday night. Love talking to the youth. And we talked about sins of omission and commission. And we, 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 we dwell a lot on the sins of commission. What about omission? What about the times that someone crossed your path and when meaning that person walked away, you said, God said, you know, I, you missed it. And you feel that in your spirit. I, I had something for you to say to that person. You didn't do it. I've had to repent for that before. So I believe in repentance. But this idea that, that, that you can just, that the, that the grace covers everything going forward, I, I don't think that's scriptural. And I want to read Romans 6, 12 through 15 to you, which Paul dealt specifically with that. And I don't know how people who adhere to that particular doctrine get past this scripture. Because apparently that same thought was in the Roman church. And this is what Paul said in Romans 6, 12 through 15. He says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't let sin reign in your body. Okay? You got something you're dealing with, deal with it. And we're going to talk about that. Don't let sin reign there. Therefore do not... Next. Do not offer any part of wickedness to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. And then listen, we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. But what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Paul dealt specifically with that. Specifically. Roman church must have felt like, okay, we're not under the law anymore. We're under this grace, this unmerited favor of God. So I can just do all, anything I wanted to. And that's what Paul, should we do that? Paul says, no. No, we should get up every day and set on a path to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And be prepared to repent before him when we fall short of that. How serious this is it? Paul told him, said, some of you are falling asleep. Some of you are dying. Some of you are sick. There's a, there, there's a in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, the story is told of Aaron's sons. Aaron was the first priest in the Old Testament. He had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And in the Old Testament, God gave very specific instructions about how you could approach him. Okay. That's what's so wonderful about Jesus Christ. He came, the, the Bible says the veil was torn. Prior to the Lord, there was the courtyard, there was a holy place, and there was the holy of holies. The only person who could be in the holy of holies was a priest once a year. He had to repent of his sins and make sure he had himself right before he went in there. Because he might die in there if he went in there. Acting stupid. Okay? But Aaron had two sons. And the Bible says that they offered some strange fire before the Lord. I don't know if they'd seen what their dad did, and they thought they were going to make fun, make light of this thing. 
And the Bible says, the Bible gave clear instructions. As I researched this, it said that the fire that was set before the altar of the Lord should have come off a certain, off of a certain burn, of a burnt type of wood burn to be set before the Lord. And they don't know if they just went and scooped up any old fire and put it in their censer or what they did. But they brought something that wasn't unauthorized to the Lord. You know, and as I studied this also, some commentary said that they came that way also about half lit with wine. So here they're coming. So what, to me, they're making a joke of this thing. And they came there. And the Bible says that the fire came out and consumed them. And this is what God said. He said, among those who approach me, I'll be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I'll be honored. And I thought this was interesting. Aaron remained silent. I always wondered, why did Aaron remain silent? He'd just seen this thing, maybe, or he knew his sons had, what his sons had done. He knew, and he remained silent. I'm not going to toy with the with sacred and the holy things of God, church. I'm not going to do it. And communion is a sacred and a holy thing of God. And it's a time of reverence. It's also a time of self-reflection. In verse 28 of the passage of Corinthians, Paul said this. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I think in the church, whenever we talk about, say, let's examine ourselves, generally the first thing we think about is that where we're falling short. When I spend some time with my friends and people maybe I'm witnessing to, and if I ask them about their relationship with the Lord, a lot of times the first thing they'll say is, well, I've got some things I'm doing I probably shouldn't be doing. Okay? As you examine yourself this morning, if there's sin in your life, get rid of it. Deal with it here this morning. Repent of it. Get rid of it. But also this morning as we examine ourselves, let's examine what God's calling us to do. What is he calling us to do? It's time for us to get active as, as the people of God. And too many times we get so focused on our shortcomings, and sometimes in the church, if we're not careful, we, we get into our holy huddles, and we are not like them, but we're not going to have any impact on them. And I've I, I got to tell you, I struggle with that. I don't ha- I'm, I'm not really known for my compassion, quite frankly, I'll tell you. I'm not. But, but that doesn't give me an out. It doesn't give me an out to see people and, and, and care for them. Okay, sometimes it boils down to obedience. It boils down to obedience. Just to, and, and listen, I've only got one job, and that is to tell them about Jesus. Tell them we have a good Bible-believing, preaching church here. Tell them to get into God's Word. I, I don't talk to anyone, whether it's young people, my friends, or anyone, that I don't say, you get into God's Word. You get into God. Let God speak to you. If all you're getting is a little bit on Sunday morning, you, you ain't going to get it. You, you need to get into this thing yourself. And, and I, I was talking to Colin this week, and that's one thing I told him. is I, I, I regret that as a young man, when I was younger, I didn't study and read God's Word like I do today. And, and not every day today. But this Bible is a part of my daily life. And time in it is a part of my day. And, it, and it's done more to strengthen my walk with the Lord than anything I've ever done. You know, as I read the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, I don't see page after page, example after example, where Jesus was tempted and he didn't do this and he didn't. I don't, I don't see that. 
I know the Bible says he was tempted in every way and he didn't sin. But I see example after example after example where he poured into people's lives, where he loved people, where he healed people. And you might say, well, I'm not, G. No, you're not. But you don't, you, you, you go out and be obedient and you leave the results to him. I wonder how many of us before have known there's a coworker out there that's going into a surgery or something's happening, crisis of life, and we're Christians and we've gone and shut the door or said, hey, or just gave him a devotion. Can I pray for you? They'll let you pray for them, folks. I'm telling you, they will. We had a Duke psychologist that came here several years, Pastor, and you, you remember that. And he, he talked about that. He always prayed for people. And he said, he very, I don't know if he'd ever had anybody say, no, you can't pray for me. You let someone be facing a crisis of life. So let's, as we examine ourselves this morning, as we think about what the communion table is, let's self-reflect. There's sin in our lives, let's deal with it. But let's also make a commitment. What are we doing for the kingdom of God? Lastly, it's a time to look to the future. Verse 26. Jesus said, For whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. I'm sorry, that's Paul. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming again. He's coming again. I used to listen to a conservative commentator on the radio years ago, and this guy called in, and they were talking about some of the things going on in the world that day, and this guy said something about the rapture. And this man, this guy, this particular guy said, you must be one of those rapture nuts. Well, I'm one of those rapture nuts. I believe what God's Word says. I believe that He's going to rapture His church. I don't know when that is. I'm not looking for, sign. I'm not looking for some formula. People have tried that. It don't work. But God gives us clear instruction. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Yes, I'm very interested in what's going on right now in the Shemitah year. If you don't know about the Shemitah year, it's interesting. Study it for yourself. I'm very interested in about the blood moons and four last year, four this year, colliding with the Jewish calendar. Very interested in that. Does that mean he's coming back? I don't know. Very interested in what's going on in the Middle East. Some interesting things going on over there, especially as it relates to Israel. Does that mean he's coming back this year? I don't know. I'm just going to be ready to go when he gets here. Does that mean that he's coming? You know, there's three particular script, uh, doctrines. There's pre-tribulation, and that's what our church believes, that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. There's mid-tribulation. Some believe that they'll be halfway through the tribulation period, seven years, that halfway through that, then Jesus will come. And there's post-tribulation that believes the church will go through the tribulation. That's not something we should break fellowship over. I'm not saying they could be wrong. I know one thing. If we're all ready to go, it don't really matter. It don't really matter. And we just have to trust in him. But he's coming again. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 says this. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. We see things going on in the world. I don't know what's going on. 
I don't. I'm just going to trust God and know he's coming back one day and he's going to, and he's going to take me away. And I'm going to get out and try to tell as many people about that as I can. Because he's coming again. And the time of the, the, time of the communion is the time to think about that. To proclaim, we claim his death until he comes again. I'm going to ask the, uh, Sister Judy, she'll come up. I'm going to ask the ushers if they will prepare. I'm going to ask everyone here if they'll bow their head and close their eyes.